So 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Thank you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Being a child of God. That's what this verse is about. This is what this message is about here. By the way, I normally do not dress this casually. If you just like came in, you probably don't know what's going on. But I don't normally dress this casually for Sunday morning. We have a baptism at the end of this message. You know, baptism, it doesn't make somebody a child of God. It's recognizing that they are a child of God. I was, um, a couple weeks ago, I did a marathon. And I, when I did my last long run before I did the marathon, I just had this incredible time of worship. And during that time of worship, I was running, and I was so glad, like, I was running out, like, in the boondocks, like, nobody could see me. So I'm, like, having this, like, time with God, and I'm, like, shouting and screaming, and I'm just telling God that, I was just telling God that I've never felt like I belonged. Not, not at, not in friend groups or whatever. I've always had an issue with this, but I always have known since I came to Jesus Christ that I was a child of God. And it's from that, that I'm able to love better. I'm able to be the person that God wants me to be. Today is Baptism Sunday, so after my message, we'll be having a baptism celebration. After the baptism, we'll have a reception in the fireside room um, following that. Um, in many ways, it's very fitting that in the middle of John's first letter to have a baptism. Oh, sorry, Batman. Batmobile's fine. All right. Um, there are many who attend church or who call themselves Christians who simply are not. This letter of 1 John is a plea to come into the body of Christ. That there are those who are maybe inside a church, but they're not part of God's church. This is John's first letter that we see in here, but it's actually not the first letter that John wrote. For that, we have the Gospel of John. It is the same author. Most notably is his testimony of Jesus Christ, the Gospel of John. He is the same John who also wrote the book of Revelation. So much of what is in this letter goes back directly to the teachings of Jesus Christ that we read about in the Gospel of John. At this point in church history, there there, there um there was false prophets and false teachers showing up everywhere. John's concern is that they would try to deceive true believers in, his, in their midst. That is, that is why John has gone so far in this letter. He compares and contrasts the true child of God with the child of the devil. The section that we aren't reading today, we'll read next week, is about the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil. John, he does, he's not looking to win any congeniality awards. He says things very plainly in how they are. Last week, I talked about how it's like, not only are you, not only are these people liars, not only are they false teachers, they're antichrists. Next week, he'll even say that they're children of the devil. 
Early on, he gives three major pillars of the authentic child of God. One, a true child of God, they are right theologically, meaning they have a right understanding of who God is and who Jesus is. This is something he'll go into greater depth as we go on in the letter of John, in which he'll say that if somebody say, says that they are, they, they have a, they're having a spirit of prophecy, but if the, if the spirit of prophecy does not say Jesus came in the flesh, then it's not of God. Now, sometimes we'll read that and I'll go into greater depth when we get to that point. And we'll think, well, as long as a person believes that Jesus is a historical person who lived one day, then that means that they're good. But actually what John is referring to was the Gnostic idea that Jesus became Christ as opposed to Christ. God became flesh in Christ Jesus, that Jesus was always the Christ. They are, they have, they are, they have the right theology when it comes to Jesus. Two, they morally, they obey Christ. uh, John says early on in this book that if you say that you are in Christ, but you do not live that way, that you are a liar and the truth does not dwell in you. A true child of Christ obeys Christ. Jesus Christ says in the gospel of John that if you love me, you will do what I command. Third, they love. A child of God loves. They love their enemy. They love their neighbor. And John's point specifically is they love those in the church. It's almost become a sport to drag on, to, to, to say awful things about people who are in the church. But John says, you know that you've been brought from death to life because you love those in the tr- church, the brethren. In one respect, everyone starts off one way. Isaiah 53 says that we are all like sheep have gone astray, each to his own way. That on our own, we are part not of the kingdom of light, but the kingdom of darkness. What then makes the difference? It is not trying to be better. It's not trying to follow the commandments that makes you go from the, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The love of the Father makes the difference. The love of the Father makes the difference. The love of the Father applied to the individual's life. The Father's love remakes us into his children. God reveals his love in so many ways. It's powerful. It changes. It purifies. It empowers. It makes the child of the devil change into the child of God. So who is a child of God? That's a great question. Some believe everybody's a child of God. Alan Jackson, the country music superstar, has a song called, We're All Children of God. And he goes through all these things where we're all God's children. I remember when I was working at this treatment facility, um, every now and again, me and my coworkers, we'd get upset at the kids and we'd say things that maybe we shouldn't have said. And then somebody would, would pop in and we'd have this joke. We were like, they're, they're just God's children. You know, if you saw, um, what's, uh, the angel show during the nineties, I can't remember what it's called now. Touched by an angel. We'd repeat that. They're just all God's children. Um, that might be true in the sense that everyone is created by God, but it's not true in the biblical sense, especially of the way that John is speaking. A child of God is not simply a creation of God made in his image, but it is one with a right relationship who through the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit has now been adopted as God's child. John, in his gospel, will write in chapter 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name. So we have a conditional statement there, right? So if you're, if the next part is going to apply to you, the first part needs to apply to you. But to all who did receive him. So if a person has not received him, it doesn't apply. Who believed in his name. If a person doesn't believe in his name, meaning he who believe Jesus is who he said he is. Not simply concessions that Jesus walked around one day or that I agree to these certain things. No, I believe him. I believe who he says he is. I believe on his name. He gave the right to become children of God. So not everybody's a child of God. In fact, nobody starts off as a child of God. In fact, the Bible says that we are children of wrath. John will say children of the devil in the next section here. So no, not everyone is a child of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So much of John's letter here, he's drawing directly from the teachings of Jesus Christ himself. Many people call themselves red-letter Christians, meaning only the stuff in red, that's what I'm going to trust. John is taking from his gospel, he's the same author as the, as the gospel of John, as the letter of John. It is all authoritative because it is all coming from the Holy Spirit. Two weeks ago, I ran my second marathon, and it went really well. And actually, all, all together went well. I, I shaved about 30 minutes off my time of my last marathon. However, it almost went really, really, really well. Um, the first 20 miles, actually, I was killing it. Let me be, be clear. I was on track for below four-hour four hour marathon, which is incredible for me. Then I got to mile 20, and up until that time, there are people who woke up that morning, 7.20 in the morning. It's 28 degrees. There's frost covering these folks, and they came there to cheer us on. And that was really cool, but the first part of the marathon, you don't really need a lot of encouragement because you're all, you're all hyped up on adrenaline. So you're going along and you see all these funny, these funny signs that people have. I, I was more, I was really encouraged because if I wasn't running the marathon, I would not have been out there. It was too cold. So I'm running along and I see all these signs, you know, people, way to go. You can do it. There were some of that were like really funny too. Like, I remember one person had a survey. Like, when you ran past them, you're supposed to tell them. And it was, uh, it was Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. So I ran by and I said, boys to men. For real. Anyway. <laughs> other people had uh, other jokes or something. One person had a demotifier, which said, you know you don't have to do this, right? <laughs> you know what I needed the motivation is that on, on mile 20, I had to stop to use the restroom. Which, if you're, if you're a long distance runner, you're like, no. I mean, if you have to, it needs to be earlier on, not towards the end. Because once you get towards the end, it's, it's so much mental than physical. Because once you stop, you start feeling all of the pains of those 20 miles that you didn't realize you had before. Like, my arms hurt. My Achilles hurt, which always, like, really freaks me out. And, uh, and I was barely moving once I got on the road again. I was like, oh, no. And I, thought, I actually thought about giving Becca a call and telling her, can you just pick me up? I'm, I guess I'm just not running the marathon. And then there's these people and they're, 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 they're cheering me on. They're encouraging me and they were super annoying. You don't want to hear encouragement when you're ready to quit. When you're ready to quit, the person encouraging you becomes almost the most annoying person on the face of the earth. But what they're saying is more true than what the other people had said, because this is the time you need it. It's the time where you have nothing left in the gas tank, where you're all, you feel like a bunch of broken glass that you need the encouragement. John here, he stops 
And he gives some encouragement in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. Before we go on to even weightier things about children of the devil and all of this, he starts off, see what kind of love the Father has given us. And we are too focused to meditate this week on, on that right there, the love that the Father has given us. These three verses here are some powerful encouragement. Before we head into some harder, heavier matters, we need to hear this. It's about the love of the Father. We focus so much on the love of the Son, of Jesus Christ, because we know that he loved us and he gave himself up for us. But Jesus said, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. And right here we have, see what kind of love the Father has given us. We should focus on the love of Jesus. It's absolutely true. It's the love of the Father that sent the Son. It was the Father who loved the world so much, he gave his one and only Son. So, from these three, three verses, what can we conclude about the love of the Father? One, it is lavish. Two, it's transformative. And three, it is purifying. In verse one, we see the Father's love for us is lavish. It is great. It's beyond comprehension. In the 90s, Whitney Houston had a song labeled, The Greatest Love of All. What did Miss Houston believe the greatest love of all was? Here are some of the lyrics. Because the greatest love of all is happening to me. I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. With all due respect to Miss Houston's memory, learning to love yourself is not the greatest love of all. In fact, Whitney Houston's life showed the exact opposite, and the tragedy of her death showed the exact opposite of what happens when your focus is solely on you and what pleases you and what makes you happy. In Jesus' time and Paul and the disciples' time, there was a movement called hedonism. Hedonism was the idea of maximizing the enjoyment of life. Many people misunderstand this, and it's very easy. The misunderstanding is very easy because the result of it is utter degradation. It is utter indulgence. The idea, though, was that you would eat, but you wouldn't eat to, to where you were stuffed, only to where you were satisfied. But the problem is we don't know when we're satisfied because food doesn't satisfy. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When we focus solely on ourselves, the worse we are, we're, the worse we are at caring for ourselves. Most people talk about self-care. It seems like it seems like the more, the more that we focus on ourselves, the more we do a worse job at self-care. We can't boast about our love for each other. That also is not the greatest love of all. For who here has loved someone else perfectly? Have you ever been selfish with a spouse, a parent, a sibling, a friend? The Beatles had a song called Love is All You Need. But love couldn't hold the band together as jealousy turned into hostility. The greatest love of all is the Father's love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's effective love. It is amazing love. It holds together. It transforms. It's extravagant. 
It's free to the one who receives it, but very costly to the one who gave it and gives it. It's lavish. It's the source of our own genuine love, and it truly is the greatest love of all. When I am in the love, when I, when I have experienced the love of the Father, I love people better in my life. If I think, well, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to love people in my life better, I end up loving them worse. Because what ends up happening is I make them an idol in my life. And no relationship in your life can endure the strain of trying to make them a god. Because the moment they disappoint you, you're disillusioned. The word here for um, see what kind of love the Father has given, given us in the original language is didomi. It is a verb that describes the way and the how God has shown his love to us. It means to give, to bestow, to cause, profuse, give forth of oneself. Pastor David Gusick wrote that it speaks of the measure of God's love to us. It more rightly could be literally translated as lavish. And I like that word lavish in the English because it speaks to more than just simply, here you go. It's sacrificial. It's giving until there's nothing left to give. It is showering whatever it is onto the individual. And that is what John's getting at here. See what kind of love the Father has given us. Take a moment and start thinking about it because it'll blow your mind. That we should be called the children of God. You don't have a right to be called the child of God. If you did, then it's not grace, it's payment. If there's something about you that's lovable, that's worthy of being called a child of God, then God is simply just doing the right thing. It's not grace. It's not mercy. Why does God love you? Have you ever thought deeply about that question? I remember being in youth group one time, and our youth pastor had the right intentions, and he said he was talking about the people in our school that maybe had a bad reputation or we thought whatever about. He said, what does God see when he sees them? And a a couple of us said, oh, God sees potential that he could use them. Here's the thing. God doesn't need, God doesn't need you to cooperate to use you. I mean, look at Samson. We can go through the story of Samson, right? God actually puts things in his path because Samson was not wanting to be used. God can use you, but that's not what God looks at you when he looks at you with the eyes of love. He sees, he sees you and it's not just simply somebody he can use, but somebody he prizes that he loves, that he gave his son for to die. People answered, and so did the pastor, that God sees potential. That took me back because that is not what we read in Scripture. God doesn't look at us like he is a divine talent scout. Seriously, he can use a donkey. He's not worried about your talents if he wants to use you. Also, how about the vast majority of the people in the Bible that we don't hear about, but God refers to as his people? Are they loved less than Moses or Elijah? And if it's about your usefulness, what happens when you are not being useful? Does that mean God no longer loves you? If it was anything about you that causes God to love you, then the moment that thing is gone, then God's love would dry up. But his love for you is not based in you. It's based in him. So why does God love you? I don't know, but he loves you. And that's the most powerful statement of all, because you can't disagree with it. You can't be like, no, Pastor Jason, after what I've done, God can't love me anymore. Foolishness. God loves you because he loves you. He didn't ask for your opinion. 
He didn't ask for your acceptance. He loves you because he loves you. He doesn't love you because you know the right things. You have the right theology. You act in moral ways. God doesn't love you or prize you because you have the right opinions on politics. He loves you because he loves you. His reason isn't centered in you. His reason is centered in himself. And that is why nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If it's because he wants to see, if it's because he wants to use you, the moment you are not being used, you would have to conclude that his love is less, but it's not true. And that is the case here. John tells the readers here, those who are faithful in Christ, behold what kind of love the Father has lavished on you. There's this quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, that I think really puts this into perspective. Speaking for God here, he says, there he says, you poor people that love me, you sick people, you unknown people, obscure people, without any talent, I have published it before the heavens and earth and made the angels know it, that you are my children and I am not ashamed of you. I glory in the fact that I have taken you for my sons and daughters. God it does not regret saving you, and I don't care where you're at today. Maybe you're in a period of rebellion, and you're like, God, God, God's forgotten about me now. No, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. He doesn't regret saving you. See what kind of love the Father has given us. You know, there's things that can be called you that are awesome. You may be a president, vice president, chancellor, Whatever things that people, positions you have, but there will be nothing greater. There'll be nothing greater to be called than the child of God. Do you know that? You'll be tested that when something is taken away. When your position is taken away, you'll have to decide, okay, was I that or am I a child of God first? So I haven't always been a pastor. There's times where I was a pastor. I had a period where I was looking for the next place. And I was working at Target. And God had to speak to my heart. The same thing he spoke to my heart when I was just working at Target once before is that I'm his child and that's the most important thing. And it doesn't matter if I'm raking leaves, working at Target, mopping up puke. If I'm faithful, then he loves me and he couldn't love me more. It's not, that's not why he loves me. It's that I'm his child. That's why he loves me. In verse 1, Actually, the whole sermon could have been here on verse 1. And so, the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know you is that it did not know him. You are unknown by the world. The lavish love of God makes you different. If you have been saved by him, you have a different nature. And the rest of the world knows this. They don't recognize you anymore. You are unknown. John, of course, here is applying the very teachings of Jesus Christ he recorded in his own gospel. John fifteen eighteen. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me, that it, that it hated me before it hated you. That's a hard, that's an easy thing to like in the conceptual of like, yeah, I'm standing for Christ. It's a lot different at the job. When you share the love of Jesus Christ with somebody, they reject you for it. And they have all kinds of names about you when they reject you for it. When somebody shows you hatred, that's a hard thing to deal with. You know, sometimes we confuse anger and hostility with hatred. That's a totally different thing. 
I remember one time really encountering somebody's hatred, not even for me. It was when I was working at the treatment facility, and one of our students wanted to hurt another student. And I saw in his eyes that there was no other way out of this than to restrain him because he had murder in his eyes for that other person. To have that pointed towards you, it's a good thing the Holy Spirit makes us strong. Leonard Ravenhill wrote, If Jesus had preached the same message that ministers preach today, he would have never been crucified. God's love, the Father's love for us, it is lavish. It is also transformative. It doesn't leave us where we're at. Verse 2, no matter how, what translation you have, it sounds a bit wonky. This is from the ESV. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's a bit wonky. Like, we are, but we're not, but we will be once this happens. Basically, something about you has changed from your innermost nature. God's love does this. It transforms our lives. It gives us lives. There's a tag many ministries have in that they change lives. I don't think that's, I don't think that's appropriate because God does so, the God's love does so much more than change our life. So I know a lot of ministries, they'll be like, we change lives. I was like, well, so does the Food Network. I don't put hot food right into the refrigerator anymore. Thank you very much, Gordon Ramsay. You've changed my life. But God's done something so much more than that. He brought me from death to life. God's love brings us from life, from death to life. It's a resurrection. Here's a vocab word for you kids and for us as adults. It's regeneration. Regeneration, theologically understood, is, is fantastic. But we, we, it started to develop, it started going to the mainstream as well. If you know something about bio- biology, certain lizards, when they lose their tail, regenerate their tail. They're made whole once again after they've lost their tail. If you're a comic book nerd, you know Wolverine, he regenerates if he gets hurt. What happens in Jesus Christ is better than that because it's not simply restoring what has been lost. In fact, many people see it that way, but it's so much more glory than, glorious than that. We are not restored to Adam before the fall. That is not the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's more than that. He has remade us to be more like the second Adam, Jesus Christ. That's exciting. And can you, I mean, if you think about for just for a second, Adam and Eve before the fall of what paradise really was like, you might understand how heartbreaking it is that paradise was lost, that there was no miscommunication between Adam and Eve. There was no hurt. There was no pain. There was no trauma. There was no heartbreak before the fall. And if you could have been there, if God could transport you with that knowledge, when you saw them take the fruit, you'd scream, what are you doing? Don't you know from this one sin, all everything else floods in, all the hurt, all the pain. The promise of Jesus Christ is better than to being, than being restored from before the fruit It is to be like him. It's a regeneration greater than being made back to what you were before you lost what you lost. It's more like, it's more like Doctor Who. I don't think many people even know have any clue what I'm talking about here. That's okay. Let me explain it. So Doctor Who is like a a 60 plus year running sci-fi series from the BBC. And it has the same character the entire way around. Instead of doing reboots, like in Spider-Man, you've got Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and now Tom Holland, and they're like different multiverses or whatever. This is the same character, even though there's been many different people playing that same character. 
And the way they were able to do this is they say that he regenerates. And the way the doctor regenerates is he turns into a totally different person, but he's still the same person in his inmost being. Even though he's this new person with new wants, new desires, he's still him. And this is what God does for us in salvation. We're still us. We're not a cob and carpy or a, or a clone of Jesus Christ. But we are being made into the likeness and manner and attitude, and, and attitude of Jesus Christ day by day. And on the other side of the veil of tears, after we die and we are perfected in our Father's house, we will be like him. And we will truly understand Ezekiel thirty six twenty six, which says, For I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of yeah, heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. When you came to Jesus, He gave you a new nature. You lose your former ha- things that made you happy. You lose you lose your joy when you act contrary to your new nature. It's like eating something you hate and pretending you you like it. You have this new nature with this new wants and this new desires. So for you, beloved Christian, for you to act in rebellion, you will be utterly miserable because those things don't make you happy anymore. They used to, but now you've regenerated. You're a new person. That happened in Doctor Who one time. He's trying to figure out, what do I like to eat now? He's like, maybe apples. He takes a bite of an apple and he throws it out. It's gross. He decides he likes fish fingers and custard now. You have a new nature, you have a new thing. So if you try to do the things that used to make you happy, they make you miserable because you've now been changed. What you are is not what you will be, but once you are that, you will really be that. You have this new nature with new wants, new desires. We shall be like him. This is the work of God's love in your life. Your new desire is to be like him. You are becoming more and more like Jesus all the time. If you are in him, that is. This is the expected outcome. Not a clone of Jesus Christ, but in the attitude, attitude and manner uh, that he is. This will happen for everyone. Well, this will not happen for anyone on this side of eternity, but on the other side when we are resurrected in our Father's kingdom. Because we shall be, for we shall see him as he is. Isn't that an amazing thought? When we go, when we die, or we are, we are raptured, we will see God in all of his glory. You know who got to do that? No one. Not even the angels. In Isaiah chapter 6, there are, above the throne of God, seraphim. These are angels with six wings. With two, they're covering their feet. With two, they're flying. And with two, they're covering their eyes. They can't look at God in his glory. And, and angels in the Bible, they're not like angels and touched by an angel with the Irish accent and everything like this. When angels showed up in the Bible, the first words out of their mouth was, settle down. It's okay. These incredible creatures could not look directly into the glory of God, but we will. We will. We'll be able to see him in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Is this your chief desire? Or is it to be more moral or more righteous than others? Is it to live an easy life? Is it to gain fame? 
C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Great Divorce, that in the end, everyone gets what they want, but not everyone wants what they get. God will not force anybody to be in his kingdom, but his children have a great desire above all things to see his face. To see the face of the risen Christ holds little for those who don't know him, but for the child of God, it is the singular obsession. And the reason why you don't always feel that way is because you've let the things of this world into your heart and it's numbed your true desire. And you've accepted the lesser things instead of the best thing. It is though if I told you we're going to have a banquet later today with steak and lobster and lobster stuffed with tacos and things like that, and you're like, okay, that's great, but I'm going to go, go, I'm going to go ahead and eat at a fast food place until I'm stuffed. All that stuff looks gross to you now. If we go to it hungry though, when we realize that this is what I truly desire instead of being numbed by the things of this world. Here's the third thing the Father's love does for us. Verse three, the Father's love purifies us. Verse three is a very short verse. And everyone, thus hope is in him, purifies himself as he is pure. It makes us want to be better. All of the world system, every other religion, every other whatever you have philosophy, it's, ba- it's predicated on the Santa Claus philosophy. You know, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good or so be good for goodness sake. Why? Because Santa Claus is coming to town. You want to go to Nirvana? Mind your P's and Q's or you're going to be resurrected as a cockroach. You want to you go wherever, you want to do this or whatever, do these things. And then you'll gain the favor of God. In Jesus Christ, it's the exact opposite. It's because he's accepted me, because he loves me. That is why I do what I do. It's motivated by love. Instead of gaining something that I can never gain because of my own sin, it is given, given freely to me now. I do not seek to be pure so that God will accept me. I seek to be pure because he is pure. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure, meaning Jesus Christ. So I do X, Y, and Z not to be accepted, but because I am accepted. Believers, we should be acting differently. We should love in a way this world doesn't understand. This missionary to India, actually, this wasn't in my notes. I put it in my notes this morning because I was listening to a podcast this missionary to India named Daniel um, Courtney. He was speaking of this story. He was preaching in India, and a few men got upset with him. They took him, and all of a sudden a mob started forming, and they started beating him with their fists, beating him bloody with their fists. They were going to take him to one of their temples, and they were going to forcibly put the mark on his forehead that they have in their religion, the bindi. They they were going to put the bindi on him. And it was at the last moment he was rescued by some other people. And one of the people who was beating him bloody and was going to put the mark on his head was one of his literal next-door neighbors. That's a bit awkward, right? I have a good relationship with my neighbors. It'd be weird for me to be like, Terry, remember when you were beating me up yesterday? But this is one of his neighbors. God did such a work in his life that he realized, you know, this is my opportunity to show God's love. So bandaged up, still bloody, he goes the next day to his neighbor's house and tells him that he forgives him. And he also brought him a bag of fruit as well. And the man was just blown away. He's like, because my Jesus tells me that we love our enemies, we forgive our enemies, and that if our enemy is hungry, we feed them. And if he's thirsty, we give him something to drink. 
He did not do this because he was thinking, if I do this, then God will really accept me. But because of that God had forgiven Daniel of so much, how could he not forgive his literal neighbor of that offense? Our great hope is not heaven. Surprise? Sometimes we say to people, do you want to go to heaven? That's not our great hope. You don't even see that in the scripture. It's to be with Jesus Christ for eternity. That's our great hope. It's not seeing loved ones again. It's not getting to play hopscotch on streets of gold or to see the pearly gates. It's a promise of Jesus Christ that the angel had that he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. In the book of Galatians, the author will speak of the acts of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. The flesh acts out. The spirit produces. You can try to act out, try to act, try to um, gain fruit, but it doesn't work out so well. Those of you who are farmers, you know this, right? There's only so much you can do. You can't make the grain grow. You can't make the corn grow the way it needs to. There's a trust in there that only God can do these things. That there are things outside of your hands that can, that have this, but you have a trust that things, they produce after their own kind. The Spirit produces in you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Are you growing in these things? Are you growing in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? In other words, are you being purified as he is pure? Or have you lost track of these things? Does the love of the Father hold very little meaning to you now? It might be because you've let so much of the world inside that you've become numb to the things that truly matter. Or it might be because you truly aren't in him. If you are truly not in him, today is the day of salvation. In just a moment here, I'm going to call Brandon out, and we're going to be doing this baptism ceremony. And sometimes we have this image in our head, and we, I think we've called it, we've coined it easy believism. As though a ceremony is what saves somebody, it's not. It is the power of God himself. Something amazing happens, and nature changes. I'm reminded of the story of the, four, the Holy Forty. This was the story of part of the Thundering Legion during the first century A.D., There were 40 individuals in the legion, the thundering legion, who came to faith in Jesus Christ, and their prefect couldn't allow this. So he had them, in the middle of winter, go out on this frozen lake to freeze to death. And out on the shore, they had these pools of, um, these uh, baths of warm water for them to get into if they would just renounce Jesus Christ and declare Caesar as Lord. And the, the, the 40, they came together and they prayed together. They prayed, God, you've called 40 wrestlers to battle. Grant that 40 wrestlers would have the victory. That they had shed blood fighting for a human emperor. They would shed blood fighting for their king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that they would not declare Caesar as Lord. Time went on. And for one of them, the strain became too much. He ran out. He went into He went into one of these baths. The word baptism comes from the Greek baptismo, which means to be immersed. So you would rather be immersed in the world, in comfort, than to be likened in the death of Christ, to be be immersed into the sufferings of Christ. 
So now there's 39, but they had prayed, God, you've called 40 wrestlers to battle. Grant that 40 wrestlers would have victory. One of the centurions who are guarding them strips off his clothes and gets onto the ice and says, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. For he would rather be baptized in the death of Jesus Christ and be raised again on that last day than to enjoy the pleasures of this world. That's the picture of baptism for us in the New Testament. As we go down into the water, we are saying, I have died to my former life. I've died to my old wants, my old desires. Now, baptism doesn't do anything if nothing's happened inside. Brandon's just going to get wet and we're going to play around in the pool on the stage, if that's the case. But if the person truly has been brought from death to life because of faith in Jesus Christ, then it is a symbol of something incredible. That I've died to my old self, to this world and all of its desires, and I've now been raised alive to new life in Jesus Christ. And that is why we have the children here today, because this is something we celebrate as a church family.